dynastic wealth is wealth that transcends for 300 years. Um, and then subsequently, I watched as my parents actually lost quite a bit of their net worth during the dot-com crash. What is the paper market crash? Yeah, ever since I was a kid, you asked my parents, I was eight years old, I was sitting at the table with all the adults listening and gathering intelligence. Welcome to another great episode of the Dre and Smiley, the Inner Circle Podcast. Dre, I am super stoked to have Dan on the, the podcast. It was a couple weeks ago I met Dan on the phone and we had such a enlightened, uh, enhanced conversation about all types of finance stuff and I invited him to be on the podcast. So I'm just so happy that he's here. I'm going to read the, the, his bio before we get started. Dan is a believer in Jesus Christ. He's married and has five children. Dan is a wealth strategist and a wealth preserver and recently left a 17-year career in the investment and retirement world to be able to warn people about the impending paper market crash in stocks, bonds, and currencies, and to teach people about what he calls the hard asset movement into areas such as precious metals, gold, and especially silver, energy projects through oil and gas, uranium, high-quality real estate, and any other hard or tangible asset that can be traded. There is a rarely a financial case study that Dan has not seen before. His insights into financial markets and real life experience, along with a highly personalized experience, make him uniquely qualified to teach others the wisdom he has found in 34 years on the earth. And I must confess, Dan, when, when I spoke with you, I did not realize you were only on the earth for 34 <laughs> years because you had such a, uh, your kid, your range of knowledge and understanding was so vast. So if you're 34 and you've been doing this since you were 17, yeah. what was the catalyst that got you into real uh, finance? And, and the reason why I asked it that way is I read about, I think it was Warren Buffett learned about compounding interests or numbers when he was in. He had his wisdom tooth pulled or his tonsils removed and he was nine. And John D. Rockefeller, I think he was 12. He learned about the power of interest. And then J.P. Morgan was five. So you're you're like not far behind him. So when did you learn about finance and wealth? And what was your catalyst? Yeah, well, Dre and Smiley, thanks for having me on. Maybe I'm your first cold caller in a sense that's ever been on your show, but not really. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been working on the phones, you know, most of my career, except for when I started in banking. But yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I would say it started around the year 2000, 2001. I was 11, 12, and I was introduced to the stock market game in middle school. Um, and then subsequently, I watched as my parents actually lost quite a bit of their net worth during the dot-com crash and just kind of watching and, you know, having an understanding that, you know, other 12-year-olds clearly had no idea what was going on. And I was just this kid watching the world and trying to observe things and, you know, trying to be curious and just trying to attain, you know, information, which I could then turn into knowledge. And I figured that out. And it just, it, it, it's always self-perpetuated since I was a kid. And, you know, starting at a young age, um, I always just followed my heart. If I, you know, was, if I wanted to do something, I went for it. If I didn't want to do something, I didn't do it. Uh, and that's just, that's, that's always been how I've been. And my family, my friends could, could tell you that's how I've always been. And, um, you know, but watching, you know, watching the dot-com bubble happen and then the real estate bubble. I mean, by the time I was in banking, I was actually, um, I was TD Bank's youngest teller uh, in history. I was actually 16 years old, almost 17, wow. but technically I was 16 when I was working 
um, you know, work in the teller window. And uh, I've just always had a, a passion for for numbers and just for putting things together. And, uh, you know, I was I went to a D1 school with, and I was an average to maybe below average athlete and I'm only 5'8". So I was like, I guess I'll go the academic route. <laughs> um, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Well, like, say, for example, I have a 16-year-old, and since you got into the market or stocks at age 11 or 12, what would you say to someone who has teenagers to, to get them off of the TikTok and the Instagram just to get them motivated into assets and liabilities? Or is there any trade secrets you have to convince a person that you need to learn about your assets before you're 18 or learn about liabilities? If, as a parent, if you can plant the seed – and water it. That's really all you can do. It's either going to grow or it's going to wither and die. And if they have an interest in it, um, you know, my oldest is 11 and my youngest is two. So I'm starting to have that social media conversation, but it is very challenging because of the addictive, the addictiveness of social media. You know, I first joined MySpace when I was 14 or 15. It must've been 03 or 04. Um, I had a Facebook in mm -hmm. at mid 06, you know, it, a totally different world, totally different world than what I grew up with and what these kids are now growing up with. It's, it's, well, it's far more addictive. And I guess I, we've had it our whole, you know, good chunk of our lives, or at least me anyways. Um, mm. But I don't know how these, these kids are just being bombarded with so much information. Um, it, screen time is really important. We really try to limit the amount of screen time on their iPads in general. Hey, you know, get outside, go play, go ride your bike around the neighborhood kind of thing. And, um, you know, but yeah, you can foster, you know, if, if they express an interest in something, try to guide them to it. And then at that point, it's it's really up to God at the end of the day, what, what we're all destined here for. So, um, you know, I always I always struggled when I watched parents, you know, push their kid to the ends of the earth to do something that they wanted to do, which is not mm. fair. Uh, at the end of the day, it's mm. allowing the child to dis discover what they're good at, things of that they're interested in, then really harvest and, you know, foster that um, as opposed to trying to push them to do something that say, I want to do. Um, they should be focusing on things that they want to do. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting how some parents, they never became that star football player. So when they have a son, all of a sudden they're trying to push them into that path. They were never to, you know, able to accomplish. And it's, it's unfortunate when that happens, you know, um, hopefully, you know, something, you know, uh, 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 switches flipped where they realize, whoa, this child really isn't interested in that path, whatever it is. Something else you mentioned that was interesting, that in terms of exposure, right, the significance of exposure for a child, whether it's intentional or not, you mentioned that you watched your parents go through the um, 2000.com bust. And they also lost money earlier as well. And from that exposure, you realize, whoa, there's something to this I need to have a deeper understanding of. Right? Even at that young age, I'm mm -hmm. not sure how you actually formulated that, but that was kind of a planted seed, to use your phrase earlier. A planted seed. Um, that exposure was, was, was you know, pivotal. It was integral to, you know, the guy, the person you are today. We had a podcast guest on, I want to say this summer who's a neurosurgeon, extremely successful, like you sound like yours as well in, in finance. She's also extremely successful, but in medicine, the 
pivotal moment for her was her mother was a police officer and was shot by someone and she became a quadriplegic at a young age. Yeah. Imagine the impact, right, to a child seeing that. At a young age, it planted a seed for her where she realized, well, I want to get into medicine. I want to get a deeper understanding of what, what happens here and Maybe there's something I can learn to do to kind of, kind of, kind of fix this. So yeah, I, I think um, all of us as parents, you know, subconsciously or, or not, we always want to make sure our kids are exposed to, you know, as much as possible. Hopefully, nothing that's you know um, devastating, you know, as 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 what you know your parents went through and this lady's parents went through. But perhaps planting those smaller seeds of, hey, here's what stocks are, like Smiley said earlier. Here's what you know. Find here's how do you manage money, et cetera. So let's back up to the to the uh, the bio that that Smiley read. One thing that he mentioned is the paper market crash. <laughs> I've heard of different types of crashes. What is the paper market crash? Tell me more about that. Yeah, to me, so I basically look at it as everything has been financialized over the last you know however many years you you however however far far back you want to go. Dot com. You want to go back to the eighties or seventies when they changed you know money and they took gold out of the equation. You want to go back to the Great Depression. You know, we can we can look back and assess history for for what it really was. Um, but um, you, you mind you mind asking that question again? So yeah. So just wondering, how, define paper market crash yeah. and like what, what it means and then what should we know so that we can avoid it or, you know, manage through it? Yeah, so I, I believe there's a very high probability um, that things like stocks, bonds, and currencies are going to collapse in mm. could be the coming months. It could be before the election next year. Um, I I don't know how I can sense this. Um, there's a gentleman that I follow named Peter Grandich. He became pretty famous after the 87 crash. Um, he was 30, I think he was 33 years old when he called it. And, um, you know, he was, they, he did the he did Good Morning America and all those circuits, you know, right in, you know, late 87, early 88, right after the market crash. So I'm starting to go out there on a limb and say, hey, look, there's significant warning signs. You know, I came from the 401k and IRA businesses. There's, you know, many tens of trillions of dollars in those products. And they're, think of it like cattle. Everybody's herded into only so many investments. And they preach diversification, yet those accounts really don't have diversification because they're missing an entire swath of asset classes that simply put have not been allowed in because they're not insiders. So, you know, those asset classes traditionally you're going to see in 401ks are pretty much stocks, bonds, and cash is really what you're going to generally see. IRAs will give you more level of diversification, um, but at the same time, even with IRAs, um, there is still uh, broker dealer failure risk, and you know having your uh, account, you know, at uh, any particular firm that's still ultimately within the system, and the system's fragile. If you're in a glass house, and well, I'm in a house, I'm protected. But if it's a glass house and something right. happens, kind of thing, um, it, it's almost a case of all the firms have basically gotten together and you know they like handcuff each other on the highway and they say, all right, we're all going to go down together, if it, kind of thing. It, that's really the best way I can describe it, you know, being on the sense. inside. But when I've, I, I've been on the inside, but I've been on the ground level. I'm, I've been that, essentially that troop that's on the ground, you know, hearing intelligence. I've always worked on the phones. I've always worked with 
retail clients because it, it could be it could have been pretty easy for me to like find my way into the institutional world and it's a totally different ball game but right. um you know i, I worked the 1-800 fidelity gate for, for okay. about a year so like you know just i've always enjoyed you know having my ear you know where i can gather the most intelligence so to speak and kind i've always been like that since lines. a kid yeah ever since i was a kid you ask my parents i was eight years old i was sitting at the table with all the adults listening and gathering intelligence. Like that's just how God made me. And I've always been that way. And, um, you know, banking when I was at TD, you know, I did insurance for a while, investment planning, retirement planning. I've always just enjoyed the one-on-one relationships that I've been able to have uh, with my clients. And it's just, it's, it's been a fun business. Um, But I got to a point this year where, you know, it's, it's a case of seeing the tea leaves on the wall and I'm looking at it going, I'm still selling, you know, I'm, selling these products, you know, and you know what I've made my client, I've, I've in my, in my 15 years, probably moved about 1.3 billion. Um, but my largest client is, you know, five or 6 million. It's not, you know, and those, and when I say my clients, they're really, you know, they're Fidelity's clients, they're Empower's clients. Um, yeah, I've just been there to guide them and assist them. Um, but I, I, I totally removed myself from that industry. I, I let my series seven, license lapse. And, um, you know, I'm at, I'm at the point now where, um, you know, I, it, just the compliance, the regulatory burdens and the people on the inside, they can't speak. They don't have a voice. You know, if you call one of these places, you're going to get a can scripted by the book answer because you're always on a recorded line for quality assurance purposes, of course. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> based, yeah. based on that, let me ask you a question. There's a movie that, that uh, captures what took place uh, in the 90s 2000s the big Boiler short the big that's short. a good one too the big yeah. short the big short what, what, what you share and kind of reminds me of that the big the big short you, you guys have, have yeah. seen that we lived it obviously but have you seen the movie it's a good one oh, absolutely absolutely something, something else comes to mind is smiley he, he's he's really into the world of finance in terms of just you know books and things like that Smiley, what's the, the those countries as in the BRICS? Is it the BRICS? What's it BRICS. so when you mentioned yeah. when you mentioned Dan about a crash of the currency, right? And you, you're familiar with familiar with BRICS, oh, yeah. Brazil, Russia, India, India, China, 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 China South, South, South Africa. Africa, and there are two South others Africa. I think joined. Am I right about that, Smiley? Is it, were there two others? Yeah, I think I believe they're up to trying, eleven or twelve I, now. Um, yeah, and there's something like yeah. forty that yes. want to participate. Um, probably one of the foremost experts in the entire world on the topic. Um, he's actually uh, the precious metals. A dealer that I'm affiliated with, um, the company is called Miles Franklin, and his okay. name is Andy Schechtman, S-C-H-E-C-T-M-A-N. Uh, he's been warning people for nearly three years, and essentially everything he said in the past has come to fruition. On warning it. people and, of what? Uh, what's going to happen? He's been warning. talking about bricks. He's been talking about how this global alliance, um, particularly it's the linchpin of Saudi Arabia, and they're holding a lot of the gold, and as soon as they want to turn essentially turn that their new system on, um, they're going to essentially stop taking dollars, which is why you're seeing interest rates rise so high. We're seeing the 10-year touch 5%. And that's because of this indiscriminate selling across the board. Uh, you have international um, governments, you, you have all kinds of different uh, investors that are selling these treasuries in anticipation that they'll be far less redeemable globally. You know, we've essentially been the global reserve currency 
um, since World War II. So, you know, you could spend a hundred dollar bill in India or China or South Africa or Europe. It was commonly accepted. But over the years, that acceptance has been going down. And, and now it's at a point where these countries are about to say, you know what, we don't, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't want to take dollars in exchange for the oil. They'll take their BRICS currency or they'll take, you know, they'll, they'll make different mm-hmm. arrangements with each country. So, um, you know, Russia will have certain strategic partnerships with other countries, but, you know, the BRICS alliances as well as other alliances, um, essentially these alliances are meant to really be just from a free trade standpoint. Uh, all these groups can, you know, in, you know, trade with each other and essentially, you know, get rid of the G7 countries and, you know, get rid of Europe. Um, wow. And that's where most of the growth is going to come from. You know, so from a stock market standpoint, you know, what do they talk about? Growth, growth, earnings, growth, earnings, growth. Well, the vast majority of the growth moving forward is going to happen in developed countries, (laughs) countries that have populations that are growing. And if if people don't want to come to the United States anymore and immigrate here because all of our third world cities are shit, (laughs) um, that's also a long term brain drain. you know, so I hate to say it, but, you know, in, in 10 years, we could be looking at a Venezuela situation as dire and as crazy as it sounds mm-hmm. today. Um, if we, if, if we don't fix what needs to be fixed and there's a lot that needs to be fixed and there's voices like mine that have some good ideas, but just not enough people that are well, cause no one wants to fix the system. The system is how it is because it feeds itself. And, and those everybody that fix within, it are benefiting from it. Is that, is that fair to say? They, they, yeah, they're, they're the ones uh, getting rich off of it. Yeah, so insider trading. They have, no, they have trade, no incentive to fix it. Insider trading, if you and I had, did insider trading, you would go to prison. Uh, but in Congress, it's totally legal. And they're the ones that, they're yeah. the ones on the appropriations committees, and they're the ones creating these bills where America, wake up. They're, they're actively trading yeah. and li- illegally trading and profiting off of that. And where's the outrage? But there's limited outrage because everybody's working, you know, two jobs, three jobs, maybe both spouses are working, you know, everybody's just so, you know, distracted, tired, yeah, tired and distracted. And yeah, 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 bread and bread and circus as well. It's there's a lot of distractions for those people who could uh, change uh, or could help with things. They're probably watching the football game or, you know, not not to put football down. Um, lifetime, <laughs> lifetime Patriots fan up here in New England, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask is going back, say just for our listeners, because we had some people on before who were wealth people and they talked about stocks, bonds, but you actually mentioned you're going after hard assets. Can you just in layman's term, explain the difference between trading commodities like silver and gold or uranium or oil? as compared to trading with um, paper, bond stocks, which you can do with Fidelity. And say a basic question is like, if I wanted to go buy, and this is for my listeners, I wanted to go buy some silver. Can I do it at Fidelity, TD, or Trade, Or is there special brokerage just for commodities and precious stones like that? Yeah, you can. Now there's, for me, it's physical, it's tangible. What can I actually physically hold in my possession. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like with what I'm doing right now with the oil and gas venture, like you can't physically hold the oil, but you're a direct owner and whatever mm-hmm. comes out of the ground from that standpoint. Um, you know, there's there's a saying that I've heard a few different people say, it's if you don't hold it, you don't own it. And, you know, there's the concept of rehypothecation. There's the concepts of force majeure, where essentially if the system 
um, you know, goes haywire that basically they're just going to nullify both sides of the contract and basically say nothing happened. So yes, you can go to Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard or, you know, E-Trade or wherever, and you can buy uh, various products. Um, You know, there's more common ones known as ETFs, exchange traded funds. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing with exchange, uh, the thing with brokerage in general is there's counterparty risk. So there's counterparty risk with the ETF issuer. So if it's you know, SLV, your counterparty risk is, is JP Morgan Chase. Um, if, you know, if you're mm-hmm. buying PSLV, that's the, phys- the, the Sprott Physical Trust, your counterparty risk is Sprott Asset Management. You also have to look at custody. You know, how can you redeem the silver? Because at the end of the day, you just own a paper claim to something. So just like in the big short, mm-hmm. there was, you know, the the betting at the table, they use the analogy of, you know, at, at the... Um, at the blackjack table that they're betting that's the main, that's the main, you know, hand, but then there's someone off to the side of them that's betting on, on the better. <laughs> so there's betters on the betters mm-hmm. on the yeah. betters. So those are, those are called synthetic, meaning, meaning mm-hmm. they're just fake. And, you know, Warren Buffett has famously said that um, these derivative products are weapons of financial destruction because they are, mm-hmm. um, but essentially, mm-hmm. I view it as a game of musical chairs. The, the The music is going to stop, and when it stops, then wherever ever wherever everybody's sitting is where they're going to be sitting. And if there's 400 claims, because again, this is all going to have to be dealt with in courts. It's going to take years. You know, if you're in a silver investor, do you have years to potentially sit there? And also, the lawyers get paid first, so they're going to whittle away at the mm-hmm. expenses. So before you're, I mean. I'm view. I'm looking at it as there's a potential that we might see what happened in oil in 2020. If you remember, in April of 2020, oil went to negative 40, negative 40. Yeah, I remember <laughs> uh, that. And at, <laughs> it went negative briefly. Um, and Trump at the time actually said we should buy whatever we can, but uh, I don't know how much the government actually did at that time. Uh, but I think something similar could happen in different markets. In particular, I'm really watching silver. Um, cause we've, we've seen these, the premiums on the physical products skyrocket during, you know, whether it's silver squeeze or, uh, other, you know, tumultuous times when people are looking for safety. Um, but if people start, if they don't see these paper trades as safety plays, then they're going to start selling SLV, which will cause the paper price to go down, but then it could cause this vicious, you know, loop. And then eventually the market's going to say, well, I'm not going to sell my silver for, you know, negative five dollars. <laughs> um, you know, so and then, but and then there'll have to be a new market that's created to, to, for price discovery because price discovery is the single most important thing in any marketplace. Is there's a buyer, there's a seller, and then they come together. Before, like you know, I remember when I first started looking at stocks, they used to trade in fractions. They would trade in in eighths yeah. and eighths and and sixteenths. Yeah, and like I'm probably the youngest person that remembers that and actually did that. Cause like right after, right yeah. after nine um, 11 is when they basically converted everything into, into the electronic. But there was, there was mm-hmm. reasons that they were, cause the bid was 16 and five eighths and the cell was 16 and seven eighths and they had to match. And, you know, it had to be a, a stare down and one person would either sell or buy, or you'd place a limit order. But if it was a market order, boom, it, it's, it's whatever the bid or the ask is. If, um, you know, but now computers run that. So ninety percent of all the trading done in the in the United States is done with algorithmic. You know, 
trading, you know, someone like, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, Kevin O'Leary comes in and he tells his quant guy, yep, I only want this to happen. You know, there's a, a million ifs and that's and buts. Uh, and then it spits out a portfolio <laughs> and then wow. it, it, the computer's only doing it what it tells you to do. Yet here you are, the retail investor, la, 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 I'm on Fidelity cruising around and I'm going <laughs> to buy a hundred of this. And there's already like 50 people watching because as soon as you type in the bid and the ask, Fidelity's yeah. already selling that data. It's all about data. The mm-hmm. The data is yeah. what is worth the uh, uh, the fortunes, really. So mm-hmm. if Fidelity can sell it, okay, well, we know, oh, we know Dre's. He's on his computer. He's typing 500, you know, and then they're, they're, oh no, he deleted it. <laughs> and I'm, okay. and I don't know if exactly if it happens that way, but there's certainly systems behind the scenes that not any one person can understand who says, Hey, that data is worth something. Let's package it and sell it to say sure. Citadel, um, you know, Ken, mm-hmm. Ken Griffin, who's, you know, super, super rich, who, um, you know, to shave off a few milliseconds, they actually drilled, um, these, the, this massive tunnel under a mountain spent like a hundred million dollars. I don't know if it was, I think it was Ken Griffin. Um, if, if, if someone knows that I'm off on that, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was his firm to sh- they shaved 10 milliseconds off the time from when the data at the CBOE in Chicago was reported until, until the data hit a New Jersey terminal, he figured out if I can cut a tunnel through this mountain range in, in Pennsylvania, I'll shave like 15 miles off the current, route on the electrical grid and it's going to wow. save and they'll get they'll the, their computers would get the data first and then once their computers got the data then they could front run everybody legally because they were right. beating them by, with faster information it's the same thing when uh when when wow. um you know yeah it's just it and that that's in a book brad brad ketsuyama i think he wrote he's the founder of iex which is a dark pool trading uh and he wrote a book i'm can't remember it off the, but if you look up Brad Ketsuyama book, um, he he writes all about it. It's a pretty cool book. Okay. So you mentioned the one thing I, w- I was wondering is you mentioned paper currents, paper assets, stocks, bonds, but then you mentioned hard uh, oil, precious metals, but you didn't mention anything about crypto. What's your perspective mm. on cryptocurrency? I know Buffett, it seemed like Buffett was against it for a while, but now on TikTok, they're saying Buffett's <laughs> going to open up his own crypto. I think it's, I haven't seen any from a credible source. So I, it was like, Buffett seemed to be against crypto for a while. So where do you stand on the whole crypto nascent development of a new market. I'd like to hear Buffett saying for himself, because a lot of market pundits will interject for him. And then, you know, so I, w- I yeah. would say he's probably not on board. Uh, but for full disclosure, I don't own any. Uh, I prefer to call it blockchain as I think crypto kind of has a, a twang mm-hmm. to it as opposed to its, its blockchain application technology. And I, and I actually am very bullish on that and the functionality around uh, eliminating mundane tasks in society. And those people can get retrained on things that we actually need them for. Um, in fact, there's mm-hmm. a vast majority of Americans. I think the study said that 85% of people are not happy with their jobs. So blockchain applications can certainly and, and definitely will change the lives of millions of people um, that along with AI, as long as AI is good used for good. Um, what Where I don't invest is what I don't understand uh fully to the point where i can grasp it and say yeah you know what i can because i have to understand that risk on the other side and um i'll admit when i I first heard about bitcoin and it was 20 
13 or 14 and the, it had gone down from like 900 to 180. And uh, I was working at Fidelity and there was a whole row of us and we were talking about it and we were all laughing. We're all laughing. It, it might as well have been a, a, an episode of the boiler room at Fidelity because yeah. it was there was like 10 of us and we're all just we were shitting on oh, 180. It's a Ponzi scheme. You know, what does it do? No one knows what it does. A little should I have known if CNBC was pushing it at the time. I should have probably bought a few, but <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's a case of hindsight is twenty twenty, and right. um, you know I have a couple uh, people that I work with that that are convinced that Bitcoin is going to go to twenty five million by by twenty thirty with the having and other, these other concepts, and I'm. And and I go back to it's a pon like it's a Ponzi, <laughs> yeah. but then I'm like, but it's yeah. not. But then <laughs> so I have this vicious catch 22 paradox in my mind where I just, you know, and a lot of people would say, well, just buy one. And then, but one is 35,000 now. And, you know, right. and I'm again with five kids, I, I, I run a tight household. Yeah. Do I really, you know, do I have that allocation of that capital? And right, back right. in 2013, you know, do I have a few hundred bucks to throw at it in 2013? Probably not. Right. I was working on my house, putting in new windows, you know, yeah. new bathrooms. So I'm like, I don't, I don't have money laying around. I'm, I'm working on my house. <laughs> like, like you were saying, yeah, like you were saying, like, it's like Warren Buffett, right? You know, he, he only invests yeah. in things he understands, which makes perfect sense. Right. It boggles my mind when I hear about people that are investing in things that you're not sure exactly what it is, that sort of thing. Now, obviously there are some, you know, rare situations where like, like, like in 2020, April, May of 2020, it was like, you know, everything was essentially free. So you you could almost do no wrong by putting a couple dollars here and there, you know, and just, you know, I had gone a third and I had gone a third into bonds in at the end of 19. And I actually started, I started buying silver in November of 2019. Okay. Um, and then at that point I actually bought, I, I went all in on March 12th. I think it was, it was the Dow was down 2,500 points, total panic. I was like, all right, I guess we're just going to let this ride. And I, Click the button, and I went all in, and then I was up like, but within eighteen months, I was up two hundred percent. Yeah, I'm like two hundred percent in eighteen months. Yeah. But at the end of twenty one, I started ringing the register. I'm like, this is totally yeah. insane. This is never going to happen again. I think we might even Ever. be at a two thousand top. So I started ringing the register. I went into the early twenty two with fifty percent cash, and then okay. of course I'm like, oh shit, I should have sold more. But um, you know, by the summer, I was pretty much, you know, I raised. Pretty much all cash. I'd gotten all out of the markets altogether, and I'm still out you of the markets. I I own some. You know, my portfolio is definitely not one I would recommend anybody else. And for full disclaimer, this is not financial advice. I'm no longer right. a financial advisor. I'm a wealth strategist and yeah. a, a wealth preservationist. Um, which which have, raises two questions. <laughs> raises two yeah. questions. One is, well, um, you mentioned never happened again. It will, it will never happen again. Do you still feel that way with everything that's going on in the world right now? Is it is it possible? And again, I'm not trying to, to get you. No, to no. Well, I would say when I, I so I should have clarified that I it'll never happen again. That I'll have a buying opportunity. Oh, gotcha. to Buy at these insane prices. Well, that's what I mean. That's oh, what I mean, right, though. Yeah. That's what I mean, though. I wonder, will you never have? Because because well, obviously, oh, of course, no one's, of course, no, yeah. no, no, no one saw the pan pandemic. You know that you know that that's you know once in a lifetime event. Do you want you know we hope. You know, generate uh, multi generational. But, but you have to set those expectations because if it's a once in a lifetime event and you set that expectation, and then something mm. else happens that's even crazier, now you know. Yeah. Now you're testing. Now you go back and you test yourself. You say, "Whoa, this is even like 
basically since COVID, I'm, everything that's been happening has been getting crazier and crazier. I'm yeah, like, do I, yeah, do I live yeah. in do I live in the Twilight Zone here? Right, Twilight? exactly. Oh, yeah, is this a Twilight Zone episode? Like, <laughs> yeah. I just wonder. So, as I think back, you know, there was. Um, you know, 2000, there was uh, uh, 08, 06, 07, 08, uh, mm-hmm. the pandemic, all these opportunities where, you know, people never anticipated. And if, if you were in the right place at the right time, you could, you know, do pretty, could have done pretty well. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I'm sure like others, I wonder like, hmm, you know, I don't know if this will ever happen again, but I want to, how, how can I make sure that I'm ready, you know, in case it does, Happen again. Almost no yeah, one yeah. ever is. Even even people within the financial system, they're you know they're guided to do the you know the the right portfolio allocation. Just set it and forget it. Don't watch it. Don't look at it. I take yeah. more of kind of the I, I seek the thrill kind of adventure. Okay. I'm like, all right, all right. Can mm-hmm. I like how can I keep beating myself over and over? How can I be uh, good, go from a good surfer to a great surfer? So I keep hopping, you know, trying to hit all these different waves. And that's I took a big gamble when I left my you know very cushy job. Um, mm-hmm. Where I was going into, I mean, I'm a, now I'm working in oil and gas with a company that's based in Dallas, Texas, okay. um, and I live in New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, so I'm yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm uh, the land of the misfits, but you know, they <laughs> they they actually they you know that when they hired me, they really liked the thought of bringing in someone from from New England. Um, but for me, it's always about testing myself and saying, okay, well, let's see if my thesis, you know, I'll I'll either be really happy in six months or a year, or I'm going to regret the decision, but every okay. decision I look back on in the past where at the time I was, I had regrets, I grew out of those regrets. So I can look back and mm-hmm. say, wow, that failure was phenomenal. You know, I did a six month stint at New York life and that was probably the hardest six months I ever experienced. I, I, you know, I, I would say as, a, as an agent at the time I failed, but then I look back and I said, well, I got my series six there that got my mm. foot in the door. I got into fidelity that way. And then, okay. and then I was off to the races. So it was still a net net win. I met a lot of great people there mm. along yeah. the way. Um, you know, the guy that hired me is now managing partner at Northwestern and, okay. you know, and yeah, it's the just, network. It, yeah, it's just the network. It's just the journey. It's just, mm. you know, meeting people. Um, you know, my LinkedIn is, full of people that I knew when I was six years old and then people wow. I met in high school and then college and then professionals and, you know, um, you know, yeah. So it's, 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 all, a journey it's all about and, the network. Yeah. And, and I didn't even find Jesus until I was 29. So I kind of, the whole, this whole, you know, for many years <laughs> I walked the wilderness and uh, you know, and then I finally found a compass and I hope everybody finds their compass and I'm not here to preach about Jesus per se, but about, you know, God and the Holy spirit and, you know, the spirits will be tested soon, very soon. And are you doing good? Or are you doing bad? And where are you at in your life? And, you know, whether you want to call it a, you know, a living judgment of some kind, there's going to be a big shakeup at some point. I don't know when, you don't know when, only God knows when. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, a big one's coming and his, his you know, God's children are going to um, be just fine. Um, those that are against God's children are harming God's children. Hmm. Watch out. Yeah. Tell me, tell me this as a wealth, as a wealth strategist, right? What makes you unique from the average wealth strategist for our listeners, those that are viewing this on YouTube or listening on uh, one of the podcast platforms, share with them what makes you, um, you know, the best person for this job to work with them. And then obviously, you know, how would they reach and connect with you if they're interested in working with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll actually give you my website there first. So it's, so it's www.danieltinkham, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-T-I-N-K-H-A-M.com. Um, you can subscribe, you can reach out for more information if you have questions about precious metals, uh, about oil and gas. Um, for me, it's, you know, as a wealth strategist, I, I want to help people preserve and build on, build upon, you know, what they've been able to accumulate. And you may, you may have accumulated knowledge or you may have accumulated money of some kind, but you've accumulated something and, you know, and you have to turn that knowledge in, you know, into physical wealth, but then you can use that physical wealth and then turn that into knowledge because now you're buying your time and your time you know, I found that your time is your most valuable asset that you have by far. It's, you know, it's, it's priceless. And, you know, and if you can manage your time most effectively, then you're just going to reap those rewards. And, you know, and, and there's no two conversations that are the same. I might have a 75 year old client who has RMD issues because they have 4 million in their IRA and uncle Sam's, you know, whacking them with taxes and I might have a 35 year old who's, you know, 200,000 in debt, you know, making 60 grand a year, trying to figure out how they're going to manage their cash flow. So there's, you know, no two people are going to be the same. And um, it's, just, it's really that it's that conversation that I enjoy most of all. And, you know, if you had talked to me a year or two ago, I would have been talking to you about stocks and bonds and IRA rollovers. And, you know, and that's great and all, you know, and those clients, you know, have been happy over the years. Um, I'm at a point now where, you know, because I know most of those people are in those asset classes already, you know, nine or 10 out of 10 people that talk to me are going to be in either stocks or bonds or have some cash set aside. But a lot of them aren't going to have precious metals. They're not going to have oil and gas interests. They're not going to own uranium or a lot, a lot of them, especially older folks will own a lot of real estate. But is it high quality? Does it fit within your, your portfolio? Um, you know, I... I, again, I look at things differently than everybody else. Um, I actually have studied something uh, something called dynastic wealth. And what is dynastic wealth? Dynastic wealth is wealth that transcends for 300 years. Uh, there's actually a trust in England that has been operating continu continuously since 1450. And this trust still wow. exists. This trust still employs people on the lands and, they, and it still der derives income and it still pays income. And so for me, I'm looking at it going, and that's kind of, that's my that's where my ancestral roots are is um, is England and County Devon, which the name Tinkum uh, is a derivative of Tinecom T E I G N C O M B E, which predates mm. which predates the Stonehenge. <laughs> so my ancestry wow. goes way wow. it goes way way back, um, and I want to take a trip out there uh, at some point, but. Um, again, getting back to, you know, just individuality and just getting to really understand and get to know the client that I'm working with and, and the different needs that they have and introducing new concepts in a way that's not salesy. It's not pushy. Here's, here's what I'm doing now. If you like it, great. If you don't, okay, you know, that's cool. We can talk in six months or we can talk in a year or, you know, I've always found that when you plant those seeds and you're kind about it and you, and they know that you're coming at it from a place of love, they'll always come back and say, you know what? He guided me. He treated me right. He helped me make the right decisions. You know, I, I've helped people after hurricanes and, you know, they've lost everything and, but they have their 401k or their IRA or, you know, whatever the case might be. And, um, you know, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, again, I'm, I'm just a go with the flow kind of person. I enjoy 
talking strategy. Um, I love it when people come with like super hard questions or, you know, one of, one of my faves was um, case studies. So they, at Fidelity, I was actually, I was probably, you know, on my floor, there was probably two or three people that, you know, that's the hardest, most complex questions. You know, I have a tax strategy and I need to figure out net, net unrealized appreciation. How does this fit in? What's the basis? What are the earnings? Okay. I mean, there's, there's all kinds, of, you know, they, they'd throw me whatever. And, you were the, you were the go-to, the Oracle. I was kind of the, yeah, I was the, I was the go-to in a sense. <laughs> okay. And, uh, okay. I, I always enjoyed being the go-to or if, you know, at my most recent company, if the CEO got a call and it went down the chain, eventually it'd land on my desk and I'm like, okay, wow. you know, that's, gotta that's feel cool. Good. Yeah. That's gotta feel good. So I always enjoyed so, just being that resource. Tell me this. So um, you, you shared a lot of information. I appreciate you being so open. Uh, as we transition to the final four, uh, there's a transition question for you, which is, what's one thing that most people don't know about you that you wish they did? Hmm. So I'm a numismatist. Would, okay. would anybody, would you like to? Tell me more. Uh, <laughs> is that is that a number a number guy? Is that numismatist means numbers? No, or I, no? I study coins and paper money. So, oh. yeah, so I became a self-proclaimed numismatist at the age of 14. So as part of my upbringing, um, I just, I, my grandfather gave me um, my first coin, which was um, a Lincoln. It was Lincoln and Kennedy and there was two pennies and it's in a presentation box and it explains how these weird analogies, you know, like each one was exactly a hundred years apart. Uh, Lincoln, it was something about Lincoln and Dallas and Kennedy that, I'd have to look at it again, but yeah, um, you know, and I, and I caught that and then I got a half dollar and then it just kind of self-perpetuated and I started buying books on it. Um, Just U (laughs) S currency or all money. You study U S currency or Um, mostly, mostly U S I, you know, I've, I've tried to study global currencies and global coins, but uh, not as much interest as, you know, I mean, the U S has such a diverse, mix of coins. I'd probably, I think if, if I had, you know, in the future, I'll probably study, um, you know, a lot of the ancient coins, Roman and, and Greek coins. I'd like to do that. It's just, but there's only so much time in the day. <laughs> when, when I was working in Pittsburgh, I've, I've been in sales my whole career, but we had this sales rep and he must've been a numismatist, but didn't know it because he had a collection of all these Roman old ancient Roman coins. And he had a whole bunch of them. He would have Caesars and different things. And I just thought it was fascinating. I've never seen coins that old. And he just said he collects them. He'll go to uh, garage sales or different places. If he sees something interesting in a coin, he just collected a whole bunch of them. And so, but no, that's cool. I've never heard that word before. Yeah. So thank <laughs> yeah. you. What's one thing that is that would sound uh, intriguing, you know, something that you know, you could share with us about something you learned and studying money that just kind of is really interesting. Something that kind of is just unique about the U.S. currency that it's, come to mind that it's print that it's printed out of thin air. That it's basically like going. It's like monopoly money. No, I'm not. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> that, 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 that is true. Do you know what fiat means? Fiat that's means fiat. decree. They said you are going to use this whether you like it or not, and everybody said okay. Yeah, that yeah, it's yeah, full yeah, faith yeah. and credit by the U.S. government. Some people say that there's still there's probably still gold at Fort Knox, but it doesn't back the money anymore. It hasn't for a long time, so it's yeah. you know it's a it's faith and trust in the government, and it's and and then some people will say it's the military might of the U.S. Mil, you know it's the might of the U.S. military, and I would say maybe yes to both of them, but that 
has certainly degraded. So, <laughs> so speaking on that, so since the BRICS, the BRICS is supposed to be backed by by gold, uranium, or is it just gold from the nations? Because they're going back to the gold standard instead of the fiat standard, correct? With um, BRICS? BRICS hasn't quite come up with that announcement yet. They're right now they're just using it as a basket of all the different currencies mm-hmm. of the countries. Um, I think that's why Turkey is loading up on a lot of gold. Um, not all countries can mm-hmm. bring gold to the table. So these leaders are going to be mindful of those countries um, before we go back to, you know, an all backed gold or silver uh, bricks. Um, they'll, we'll probably be looking at a basket of commodities, oil, soybeans, okay. rice, um, titanium, I don't know, pick, pick whatever your country, you know, whatever the country that wants to enter in, they'll say, here's what we can bring to the table. Will you work with us? And then the BRICS countries would then get together and then they'll make some kind of announcement as to who they've accepted into their consortium. Well, here's one for you, Dan. First final four question. If you could have dinner, there's four tables, four chairs at the table, you're in one and three others. Alive or dead, who would you want to have dinner with and why? I'd want to have dinner with my grandfather again. He, he passed away five years ago. Um, I'd also like to meet meet my grandmother, uh, who died four months before I was born. And I think I'd want to meet my grandmother's grandfather. He was, he was, a fa- he was famous in Canada. If anybody from the 1980s knows anything about athletics or aerobics. He used to ride his bike like 30 miles a day and he was pretty famous up there. And he rode his bike till he was 103. Wow. <laughs> and that was my, wow. that was my MMA. She's 80 and she's still alive. It was her grandfather. And wow. I was part of a five mm-hmm. generations picture. I was a newborn and that was me, my mother, my meme, her mother, and then her father. And he was one hundred and he was one hundred and four, wow. I think, in the picture. But he stopped riding a bike at one hundred and three. So I'd love to have I'd love to have dinner with him. And as long as I had a translator, because um, you know that that part of the family came from Southern Quebec, no English. <laughs> well, awesome. That's yeah. cool. What's been your greatest success? Uh, being a family man, mm. just having a family and being a father, and and finding God. Uh, which has allowed me to be a better father at the end of the day. Um, There's nothing more important to me than my five kids and their well-being. And, you know, being a parent is hard. And I have to make, I have to make, you know, some days it's easy decisions. Some days they're freaking hard and, you know, just trying to be the best person I can be. And, you know, if, if people that are listening, maybe they're older, maybe they're younger. Um, I went through the pandemic with, well, I went through the pandemic with four kids and then my fifth one was born in early 21. So just trying to manage a household going through the pandemic with kids in school, like I guess everybody went through their trials and tribulations during COVID in one way, shape or form. And everybody's at horror stories and crazy stories. And, you know, I was no exception to that, but, you know, again, looking back, try to look at it from a positive angle. Um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot, um, for out of, out of that. And I hope moving forward that, um, you know, when my kids can look at my life 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now that they'll say, I'm so proud of my dad. So here's one Superman flies. The Hulk is very strong. The flash is fast. What is your unique superpower? <laughs> Something that's unique, Dan. <laughs> hmm. Um, Oh, you got me on that one. Hmm. Superpower. Um, 
I can I I don't know how, but sometimes I can be at two places at once. <laughs> oh, that's okay. cool. Here and there, and then, you know, just like, explain. Yeah. <laughs> You multitask well, no, or you project? <laughs> no, that's why I picked financial planning originally. Was because I I liked the one on one aspect, and then I gave them my undivided yeah. attention, and I had to be super focused. So no, I'm I'm kind of a one task at a time, but I can be two places at once if I need to be. <laughs> okay, nice, awesome. So Dan, if you were to write an autobiography, what would the title be? He has risen. Ah, he has risen. I like it. I like, I like that it. title. Wow, that's that's like a T-shirt yeah. too. He has yeah, risen. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool. Or, or I can see it on the yeah. hat. There you go. You there just coined it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he has risen. Oh, Dan, man, I want to tell you this has been most enjoyable because you you stretched our podcast. At least our listeners. We've had wealth management people. They talk about the same stocks and bonds and and real estate, but it was just interesting to get your perspective on global affairs and commodities and bricks and, and hard, like you called it, hard and tangible assets. And thanks for being here and sharing your time with us. My my pleasure. Anytime we can talk, we could do a whole episode just on real estate. Um, I love real estate. I was a real estate agent for a short while. So I had my licenses um, and I've studied it intensely. So there's lots of things I can come back for. One, one question. This is just baffling me because when I met you and we spoke on the phone, I just thought you, I'm 57. I just like, okay, you seem like an old soul because you you knew so much about everything. I would throw something at him and he just had a response. And I was like, man, so so you have five kids, your father of five, you was a real estate agent, you was an uh, investment private. When do you sleep? <laughs> just how, how I did, do you I did sleep? A, I did a business, a I did business brokerage for a short while. I've, wow. you know, um, I've done yard, I've, I'm, a, I'm an expert yard sailor as well. I can buy and sell things. So that's one of my specialties is wow, flipping wow. things. Uh, that's okay. kind of how I got into the coin collecting because my father's a retired, my father's retired police. And then he went into the insurance industry. Uh, but wow. then he started buying and selling stuff. And that was when I was a kid. So. Wow. Yeah, Fascinating. That's life. It, life is, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, life is a journey. Everybody's at a different point. And uh, yeah, when do I sleep? Um, <laughs> uh, so wow. usually I get four to six hours of sleep a night. Um, you know, so the earliest I go to bed is midnight, 1 a.m. And then I'll usually, wow. I have to get up by six because my daughter is in middle school now. So she gets mm-hmm. up pretty early. So I get up at six with her and have breakfast. You so know, midnight is a earliest. good time to get up. Oh, yeah, I'll never be in bed before midnight. Wow. I'm, I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm watching videos, I'm catching up on, you know, being in the oil and gas business is fun, but there's a lot to learn. And every day is you got to keep up with the state of the world. And if you get behind, you know, you can really get behind. So yeah, I'm, I'm always, I try to be on yeah. top of things as much as I can. Dan, like, like Smiley said, it's been a great, great interview. I've learned a lot. Uh, I'll just say again, thanks again for taking the time to, uh, be on the podcast. Yeah, Dre and Smiley is a pleasure. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.